Happy belated Thanksgiving to everyone. Hopefully everyone out there had a great long weekend. And once again, thanks for joining us on our NECAFA 65 Years of Our Huddle Includes Everyone podcast series. And in today's edition, we've got a real special guest, uh, a bit of a local football legend here in the nation's capital, running back and, well, ex-running back and current Ottawa police officer, Darren Joseph, joins us today on the podcast. Um, Many of you of a certain age or generation will remember Darren as as one of the premier running backs at uh, just about any level he played at here in Ottawa. And he also holds the distinction of actually playing, well, at the time, every possible level in the nation's capital, meaning he played city ball, he played his Nakafa ball, he played one year of football, I believe, at St. Raymond's uh, Junior High School, and he also played junior ball with the Ottawa Sooners, played university with the Ottawa Gigi's, and followed up with the Ottawa Rough Riders and Ottawa Renegades, as well as uh, a few other CFL teams along the way. Anyways, without further ado, we'll catch up with Darren in just a moment. Hello? Hey, DJ. Hey, what's up? There we go. How much, buddy? How are you? I just switched phones. My other phone wasn't... uh, My other phone wasn't... uh, working properly so says screw this what <laughs> uh, i'm glad you said screw this and you uh you jumped on board with us bud yeah yeah absolutely awesome so as i was uh mentioning in the intro just before you jumped on board we have darren joseph ex-cfl running back ex-university of ottawa running back ex-nacafa running back current uh ottawa police services officer and Darren, I'm not. I'm not going to talk a lot. I want to kind of uh, talk more about your story. I think it's. Uh, I think it's kind of a cool one, a fascinating one. And uh, I'm going to let you take the lead on this. Just as a disclaimer, like I tell everybody, I've known Darren for years. So if I seem a little biased towards DJ, um, I am. So there. Uh, anyways, <laughs> all that to say, buddy. Um, again, very much appreciate you being on here. And uh, it seems like just yesterday we were teammates, my friend. So thanks again for joining us. Not a problem. Not a problem at all. Uh, glad for, uh, I'm glad for the invite. And, uh, you know, I, it's always good to talk football, um, especially at times like this. Um, you know, hey. there's a few people hey. that uh, might be, might tune in and, and remember some of these stories. So it's uh, be fun to tell. <laughs> awesome, buddy. Awesome. I'm going to take us all the way back um, to like your uh, little DJ. And I've seen a few pictures. I wish we, I wish there was some video to this because I would flash on the screen and I think you know exactly you got the callers going it's 70s you look like uh, you're ready to go to studio 54 I think you know the picture you know if you got the fro going <laughs> but uh but having said that take yes the Michael the Jackson well, I think we all did at some point um but take us back to those days what kind of got you you turned on the love of football like was it your first passion sports wise what caught your eye um it's a, you know, it's a good story. So my mom is from uh, St. Lucia in the Caribbean. And uh, one of the first things she did when she came here in the 60s to go to school was uh, uh, like her first social event was an Ottawa Rough Rider game. So this is back in the, um, you know, Russ Jackson, you know, with Tucker, you know, back in those days when they were, you know, a powerhouse in the CFL and they were winning great cups uh, and whatnot. So she, you know, she got really excited about that you know, first game that she went to at Lansdowne Park and she just fell in love with the Rough Riders. So by the time I was born, um, what is that? 
Do you hear music? Uh, no, I think that's on your end. Okay, okay, that's on my end. Sorry. Um. Anyway, so by the time she, by by the time she, uh, you know, you know, by the time she had me, um, basically that was uh, destined to be. Um, all I heard growing up was, "You're going to play for the Rough Riders. You're going to play for the Rough Riders." You know, it, it was just, it was just. She was determined uh, to have me play football. So um, one day I'm running home. I'm late for supper, and uh, I run by uh, a, a great man who uh, coached many kids in uh, in in Britannia. Bayshore area named Jerry Rowland. I ran by his house. He was outside watering his grass, and uh, I ran by the, I ran by his house, and he said, "Hey, hey, hey!" And uh, you know, I stopped on the road, and uh, you know, not supposed to be talking to strangers. Remember that? And yeah. uh, he, and he said, "Listen, kid." He goes, "You run pretty." He goes, "You're pretty fast." And I said, "Oh," I said, "Thanks." He said, "Listen, I coach football up here, uh, the Britannia Broncos, and I had heard some kids from school, you know, talk about the Broncos." So um, he, he gives me an application form. He says, bring this to your mom. And uh, back then, believe it or not, 19, 1977, it's, it's $15, 15 bucks <laughs> <laughs> to play football. So I run home. Uh, I tell my mom she got really excited. You know, she ran up to uh, Frank Ryan Park with me at the old shack at Frank Ryan Park. And she got the shit. She got her checkbook out and uh, stroked me the big $15 check. The one five. And I uh, started playing for the Broncos. And I, I fell in love with it immediately. Like um, in CAFA football, like it was old school, like really hard nosed football, a lot of hitting. Um, you know, I, I can still, believe it or not, I can still smell uh, the inside of that that clubhouse and the and the and the, the smell of the pads. You know, old. This, we're talking old equipment that had been around for a long time, uh, but the equipment guys just you know took good care of it and made sure that we were safe. But I mean, you know, just the smell of the cleats and the, you know, I, I couldn't get enough. I, I I just fell in love with football and it's all I wanted to do. So See, it's funny you, you it's tell the beginning. It's funny you tell it like that, man, because I, I tell people a very similar story with me in the sense I, I played a lot of sports. In fact, my first sport was actually hockey, just because you, you play that earlier in life. Um, they kind of throw you out there when you're like one. But uh, yeah. <laughs> I mean, obviously, soccer's kind of that thing we all do. And then I played baseball. And I mean, I loved them all. They all had their things I, I loved about it. I was that kid that just loved being, you know, what you'd call the, the field rat or the club or the field house rat or the gym rat. But when I tell people, when I played that first football game, there was just something, even at a young age, of being involved in what seemed to me like, or, like really structured, organized chaos. Like it was, yeah. like it was just yeah. it was so, no other sport that I played had the structure, and I guess you could kind of say the discipline um, at such a young age in terms of it being so regimented, but then was borderline chaos. And, and like you said, <laughs> yeah. when, when you were young, I mean, we remember those linebackers. And if you ask me, I remember playing. We had a guy on our team, middle linebacker Robert Javo. And you ask me now, well, what's your memories of Jeanvo? And I tell you, oh, easily. He was playing mosquito football. He was 6'1", 250. Um, we both know he wasn't 6'1", 250. We both know, <laughs> we both know he, he was nowhere near that. But I mean, in, in, in my mind, I still remember these monsters. Um, That's right. You know, like you said. Yeah. So cool. Well, how old were like, what, uh, what level did you start with Britannia? Uh, so I was, uh, I was, uh, I guess the, we didn't have tight then started at mosquito. Yeah. So I remember mosquito yeah. was the first, uh, I, I was eight. I was still eight. I just, I was eight when I uh, started practicing and I turned nine 
um, you know, a few weeks into the season. So my birthday is late August. And back then we used to start like early August. And, yep. uh, you know, you, yep. you'd come, you know, you'd, you'd get to the field and, you know, there was, I, I remember, I always remember that change in the weather and you start to get the leaves, you know, on the field and, you know, we'd start, you know, kids are making leaf piles, uh, you know, in the warm up and the coaches are yelling at us. And yeah, I was, it was, uh, about nine years old. Uh, and, uh, for me, no, sorry, Darren, no, sorry. I, I just saying you're putting a huge smile on my face right now because it's like playing <laughs> i mean we were out in canada we were out by uh bridalwood i, I want to call it pump house park but i could be it could be i think it was pump house park. anyways like you said kind of had that that training and it never started before august like you know you had the yeah. first month of july to do your your kid stuff your fun stuff if you're going anywhere with your family or you're visiting relatives or you were signing up for any type of you know uh, daytime. That's when it was meant football. You knew you were there. It was committed short time, but that was it. And, uh, yeah. I remember, like you said, training camp, it was hot and everything. And then you had that shift right after school, right about now, the time of year we're at now. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Literally. Yeah. Yeah. yeah where you see the weather, see the weather start changing and you see kids start wearing sweaters underneath their sweaters underneath, you know, and remember back then, like, like the, the, the like how you, you know, like dressing for football wasn't what it is now, right? Like you just wore what you had. Like there'd be kids there, you know, there'd be kids there with, uh, you know, there's none of this contacts or, you know, sports glasses. Guys are there with their, you know, Poindexter glasses and, uh, you know, uh, guys are, you know, kids are, kids are showing up in church shoes, you know, like you got, you got to put some cleats on, buddy. And, you know, like some kids could, you know, the kids couldn't afford running uh, cleats. And I remember they'd bring, you know, Jerry bring out this big bag of old cleats, um, uh-huh. get some of the older players to leave behind when they were done. And uh, um, I remember telling my mom, you know, my mom said, no, she bought me a pair. They, there was no, there was no, you know, screw ins. There was none of this, you oh, know, we, we wore soccer cleats. So I wore black Adidas soccer cleats that had like a line, like a black with uh, the stripes and the rubber underneath were like a, a lime green, bright yellow. Uh, and, know. you know, and it didn't matter. And, you know, no one cared about whether the shoes matched the uniform. And like, we were out there to play football and have fun. And that's it. Like there was none of this swag. We didn't worry about those things that, you know, it was just a different time. I remember you're just yeah. happy, right. You're just happy to get the equipment. Like I was yeah. just, I, I couldn't believe they gave me like, I, you know, when I first started to, uh, thinking about playing i'm like now my mom's gonna have to go out and buy me a helmet and this and that like like hockey right and and they said no no we provide the equipment just show up like what like for 15 bucks like it doesn't get any better than that like it just doesn't get any better than that you know swag was the equipment i remember the definition of swag was not wearing the zip-up sweater and track pants underneath your uh, (laughs) your equipment when you got into october And I'm not talking just sweater. I'm talking the one that had the zippers, so you the zipper on top of the uh, coming out of the shoulder pads. Then you have the <laughs> <rack> pants. <laughs> oh yeah, oh yeah, the good old days. Oh no, I, I remember mean, them I, well. I was lucky. My mom was was very handy as uh, was very as, as a craftsperson type of thing in terms. of uh you know knitting and doing stuff like that so she would always for myself my running backs uh as soon as she would knit us um 
uh, hand warmers and, and this and the sort. Um, and I remember the first few were great. There were these nice warm wool hand warmers, but what we hadn't factored in nor her nor myself was the minute they got wet, they were useless. So anyway, she developed, this was before you <laughs> pay them. You remember like we didn't have these in stores. There were no football. There was no eBay. There was no going online. There was no East Bay rather. Um, and so, yeah, yeah, she, yeah, she, yeah. She, uh, an outer uh, nylon shell, but yeah, you know, it's just, it makes me smile. Cause I remember those days. I remember, uh, you know, getting ready to play, start loving it, loving it until the end of September and then slowly, but surely in October, they, okay. You know, um, I really wish, I really wish we were somewhere warmer, but, uh, yeah, no, yeah, yeah, for sure. incredible memories going back to that. So you played, did now, did you play, uh, did you play the whole way through your NACAFA career with Britannia? Uh, no, um, Britannia, um, we were always low. We, we were we were good mosquito through through peewee and then bantam uh we started the numbers started to get low um just 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 to where we had to draw from a lot of those kids um you know even the registration fee was tough for a lot of those kids like we you know we encompass uh richie uh you know britannia richie bayshore penny drive um you know, a lot of those kids, like even, even to come up with, even to come up with the 15 bucks for some of those families was tough back in those days. So we, you know, I found that when kids, after a couple of years, uh, the kids moved on, start playing different sports. A lot of kids took to hockey. Um, and so as we got older, we started moving inland, right? So, um, I had to join the Myers Riders because the, my, the Broncos didn't have a Bantam team. So then I ended up playing Myers for a couple of years and that's when I actually switched I was, uh, I was playing, uh, running back. And then when I got to Myers, I was like all these huge kids. Um, a lot of those kids were the, uh, Bel Air Lions kids. Um, you know, from those, from that, uh, you know, Dean Noel and, uh, um, Carlo DeCipio, those teams where they used to beat people like 80, nothing. And so, um, I ended up playing with some of that, some of that group of kids. So we had a really strong team, uh, and, uh, you know, we pl- I played there for a couple of years. I ended up playing one year at St. Ray's Junior High School. Uh, St. Raymond's Raiders, purple and white, go Raiders. And then um, after that, uh, I ended up joining the uh, uh, Barhaven Redskins. Played a little Barhaven Redskins. I know you can't say Redskins now, but that's what they were called back then. And uh, after that, Sooners, Ottawa U. And uh, I was lucky enough to make it into the CFL. So it was quite the journey. Nice. And I mean, like we, we talked about it and I remember uh, um, a mutual friend of ours, a guy that I grew up with and we actually had on the podcast and I mentioned that you'd be jumping on Matt Sakaris did a piece on oh, yeah. and an interview thing. And I think it was back when was that great cup? Oh, four was it back in Ottawa? And uh, that's and right. Talking, that's right. Yeah. And it was an interesting little thing. Cause I mean, the clinical thing is, is, I mean, you know, we'll call St. Ray's junior high, high school, but you're probably one of the few players um, in the national capital region, like I don't know what the exact number would be, but it's it's got to be a legitimate low low number to say you played every single level of football in the national capital region. You played scholastically, you played NACAFA, you played university, you played junior, and you played professional. Um, yeah, no, it's an impressive thing. I mean, if there's an again, I'm a, I, you can't I can't see you, so I'm gonna make you blush right now probably. But, uh, but yeah, I, I, to, to me, dude, that's 
uh, you kind of you're the embodiment of, of Ottawa football. I've always thought that about you, brother. Is that like it's it's kind of neat that you a I mean we'll talk about you giving back to the community and all that, but kind of just the 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 timeline or growth and the example you set for players coming up that you know you're kind of always you did it in Ottawa, you did it your way, you did it in Ottawa, and you grew in the system. So I always thought that was a really cool thing. Now let's talk a little bit. Let's catch up when we were kind of teammates. Um, okay. Now you had come, you had gone to Ottawa U and then yes. you ended up coming to Sooners and then you ended up going back to Ottawa U. Um, just out of curiosity, looking back all those years, what do you, how, how would you find the difference in uh, the level mentality uh, between university and junior back in those days? Okay. Well, that's, that's interesting. So um, 88, uh, I go to Ottawa U my first year and then things don't work out in training camp. It's a long story, but um I end up a lot of my, a lot of my former teammates and, you know, guys that uh, I played against that were really good uh, were playing Sooners that year. So I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm going to keep my, you know, my, I'm, I promised my mom I wouldn't quit school. So I stayed in school at Ottawa U and uh, I went and played Sooners for three years. And um, when I joined the Sooners, uh, I mean, the very next year, we weren't very good in 88, 89. Um, we got a bunch of university transfers. So we got, my offensive line, you remember the O-line. I mean, we had four, four of the five O-linemen that, uh, that, that were starting on that team got looks in the CFL. <laughs> it's crazy, right? Like it was, they were, we were, they, they were huge. Like we had Chris Green, we had Mike Sutherland, like huge guys and, you know, talented football players, you know, good, good athletes, Huey McGinnis, you know, it was, it was, it was nice. And the, the interesting thing for me, uh, playing Sooners was a lot of the, um, like we would, you know, we would joke around about playing the university teams. And I remember Bob Stevens telling me once they would never play us. And, and I said, well, why not? And he said, well, you, do you know what, you know what the, like what kind of backlash there would be uh, in CIS or, you know, whatever they called it back then. If, if a junior team beat them, like they would never play us in an exhibition game uh, because we're one of the few junior teams that might beat them. So that was, that, that always made me feel, you know, like, like we, we had some talent on that team and um, you know, we, we did very well in, in the OFC. Um, you know, we always, you know, we always seem to falter right at the end, you know, we'd kind of crush people all year. And then, you know, when we get to the playoffs, uh, you know, it, you know, we'd have a bit of misfortune, some injuries, something would always happen. But, you know, I, I, I've told many, many, many people, uh, Sooners was the the best football experience of my life, and I am including the CFL. Um, those three years of Sooners were, I mean, that's that's when the Ottawa Sooners was, uh, you know, the top dog. You know, we didn't have six teams in the, you know, you know, you know, fighting for talent. Like everybody, either you played Ottawa U, Carlton U, or you played Sooners, and so there was a lot of talent to go around. And, you know, we, we draw, we drew from a huge area. Like I remember we had guys driving in from Cornwall, Kempville, uh, Gatineau. Um, you know, we had, we even had guys from, you know, overseas playing, playing for us. Tony, and, you know, it was. Or Tony Easton, not Easton. Yeah. Tony. Yeah. Tony Easton. Yeah. And uh, so, you know, it was, it was, it was a, it was a real honor to wear that molten leather jacket. Like if you had that Sooners jacket on with the orange sleeves and the black molten leather, that was a big deal in Ottawa back then. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, um, you know, it, I, to me, it was, uh, I mean, just the, the relationships I've built, uh, I mean, even with you, 
and still, you know, us being friends all these years later and, and, you know, still it's, it's like, we're right back on the bus. You know, when we start talking, it's like, we're right back on the bus and, uh, you know, we're, we're, uh, you know, we're on our way. We, it was just fun. We had fun on the way to the game, you know, we had fun on the field and then we had fun on the way home. So it was, uh, I loved it. I love Sooners football. I tend to, I tend to agree with you on that one. And I mean, it was, uh, it was also one of those things where uh, I, I tend to echo your sentiments. I know after we played Sooners, I went down to, uh, to UTEP and I tell people, I go, uh, the, the Sooners within reason um, was just as much of a class organization as a defense or as a division one school in, in the U.S. was. I mean, I remember those, uh, those, those days fondly. And I remember, and it started with, yeah. I forget the sheriff's name, but the guy who owned it or ran, I think it was Hamilton. Uh, yeah, the Hamilton brothers. Yeah, yeah the, bro- the brothers Hamilton. That's right. And I mean, it was such yeah. a, and like you said, it's a game for young players now not to realize what the, 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 the Sooners name really meant in Ottawa in the 70s and 80s and, and early to mid 90s in terms of it was, it was significant on the, on the, on, on our land. In terms of you heard about it, there was, you know, I heard Rogers would always carry their, playoffs. Um, you know, it was a big deal. And like you said, uh, it was just a perfect, uh, perfect storm too, in the sense that we got a lot of, I was, I was lucky enough to play with you on those teams. And I mean, you were talking old line, like you said, Chris Green, CFL career, um, Mike Sutherland, CFL career. We're not talking guys that just played a game or two. We're talking careers. Steve Campagna played in preseason games. Uh, Ewe McGinnis, Bruce Bachelor, undersized guys, but pit bulls. Um, you know, just and it goes on and on, and the talent and the yeah. No, it was a great time. Like you said, uh, again, you're 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 taking me down memory lane here, and I mean, it's a credit to the organization what it was. And, um, and I mean, here's hoping that, uh, you know, we kind of see the Sooners return to where they were at. Cause like you said, it was, uh, they were a nationally known organization and definitely within Ottawa, they were, uh, I always equated it to almost like, I mean, hockey is king in this country, but I equated the Sooners as being on similar footing or similar ground as the 67s. Um, they were just really that. Absolutely. Yeah. They were really. Absolutely. When I, when I ended up, when, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt. Yeah, no. Um, when I, when I ended yeah. up playing in the CFL uh, years later, and for years after that, I would play against guys that played junior out West. So guys that played for Surrey, you know, guys that played for Regina Rams, and they had nothing but respect and, and, and admiration for this Ottawa Sooners all the way out there. So they, you know, it's like, it's like when we hear about those guys out West, they don't think we know about them. Well, I, I'm telling you, I can't even tell you how many people from Edmonton Saskatchewan, BC, you know, Winnipeg, uh, uh, Manitoba, so many, so many teams, or so many guys that played on those teams that I ended up playing with or against would tell me some story about how the Sooners kicked their ass. <laughs> you know, it was, it was great. You know, it was, it was great to hear. And, um, you know, again, um, uh, hats off to, you know, the entire organization uh, back then and how things were run. And, uh, you know, and, and this always bothered me, you know, when we started splitting up the city and dividing up the city, uh, it was, it was hard for me to watch because, um, the, you know, it, it just changed football in the city changed and there was, you know, some infighting and, you know, a lot of ego got involved. And, you know, when, when it was just the Sooners here, we didn't have, we didn't have that problem. And, you know, they just let us play football and they gave us the tools. We had great coaches, 
Um, you know, we had, uh, we had the funding, you know, we had our own clubhouse, uh, that had, you know, been there for like, you know, 50 years or whatever, by the time I got there. Um, and it was just, uh, you know, it was just a, a class, class, class organization. I know, I don't mean to beat a dead horse, just, you know, it, it was really hard to see, you know, things change in the city and see, you know, the, just the, um, with so much talent. I mean, if we had one junior team in this city, we would dominate. We would absolutely dominate football at that level. Because, I mean, we, we have talent to get, we have talent to, to give away here. Like there's guys going to the States, there's guys, you know, you know, going Div 1 and prep schools and all these. Can you imagine if, you know, even one third of those kids stayed here and played junior? Mm-hmm. We would crush everybody. No, you know, but I, I understand it's a different time and, and, and kids have different goals and wants and needs. And I, I, you know, you have to, you have to change with the times and I get it. Uh, and I, you know, I wish all of those kids who are, who are going down South or going, you know, out of province or wherever they're going to play, I wish them all, uh, all the, the best. And I want, I want them to, you know, experience as much football as, as they can. I, I played till I was 36 years old and I never missed it. I never missed a season. In, in 27 years, I played 27 straight years of football. No, oh, nice. So, um, trust me, if they let if they let me, I'd play right now. No, I. I'm 52. <laughs> if they if they let me, I would strap it up right now. You go, um, go cover up. It's not even that they won't let me. It's them. Yeah, my my body won't let me. <laughs> yeah, it's got nothing to do with them. But, yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I you know I have uh, I've I have a lot of respect for uh, a lot of the. I mean, look at all the great coaches um, that have come through the city as well. Just ridiculous list of coaches at every level. Um, all the all these all the equipment staff, all the trainers, all the volunteers, and you know they're still doing it. You know, when you go and you look at some of these minor football teams, there's people putting in countless hours. They're not getting money. They're not getting paid, and they're you know they're out there. You know, whether they have kids on the team or not. Um, and that means a lot to me as a, as a kid who came up in the system. No, hundred percent. And I mean, I, I gotta, I'm going to backtrack about uh, just even two minutes to what you were talking about earlier. I mean, one of the big things I find, and you're preaching the choir on the Sooners. I mean, I, I was, I'm the exact same as you. I actually kind of got back involved in football and went to a few meetings and, and tried to be as diplomatic as possible, but explaining that junior football wasn't junior football. I mean, because at the time we even had like three junior teams, I believe. And again, this isn't me disrespecting the Q, the Q, the Quebec Junior Football League. I, I, I'm not here to comment on that. I mean, Quebec football is obviously very super strong. Quebec University, the SAGEP system. But I mean, the Quebec Junior League is kind of separate from the rest of the uh, – the Canadian junior football league. And that's what Ottawa was a part of. And as soon as they, that first time they moved out of that league, it was like, okay, the Sooners ceased to be kind of the Sooners. And then, like you said, it's now watered downtown. Like I was at a junior practice years ago and this trend continued since then, Darren, where it's, you get traditionally, um, you're getting 15, 20 kids at practice. I mean, that wasn't junior. Yeah. If we went, if we had a full roster and we had at least a dozen guys that didn't dress, and if you didn't, uh, you didn't make a practice, you didn't play. I remember one year, Alan Guzzo, yeah. one of our star linebackers, got like yeah, Guzzo, like, yeah, traffic stop or something, and 
couldn't make practice because he got stopped on one of his motorcycles that he was always seemed to be on. And, uh, and yeah. And, um, and like I said, and he was one of our better players. I remember he was a key to our defense, solid guy, but missed the practice, had a legit excuse. Wasn't really his fault, but Hey, you missed practice. You're not playing. Um, you know, you'd never see that. So yeah, I, I tend to agree with you, man. I tend to think things have changed ever so drastically, um, in terms of them watering down the talent. And in turn, what happens is it hurts the overall development of the players. Cause if you have, instead of having that, the best coaching staff possible, that staff might be watered down, the players watered down and, and, and you know, programs like the London's and wins have actually got stronger over the years. So it's a shame, man. Let's hope it kind of turns around and, and, and we kind of move forward with that. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, I, I have to admit, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm happy that they're not, you know, they've kind of gotten back to fall football as opposed to, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a, I, I, like, I, I never play, I played, you know, I played one season a year mm-hmm. and I, and I still think with a contact sport like football is it shouldn't be played more than once a year, whether you played in the summer or you played in the fall, you should play one season a year for one team. And, um, you know, that also started to get really crazy here where we had guys playing. I remember coaching guys, uh, you know, that couldn't come to practice cause they had their high school playoffs and then, you know, and then, they had to go to hockey tryouts and it was just crazy. We had kids playing like on, on two or three different football teams and two or three high school teams. And it was, you know, we, we couldn't get back to basics anymore because, you know, we, you know, we struggled to, we struggled to feel the whole team, mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Cause everyone's missing here and there. And you had kids that were banged up. Like we'd start to see a lot of kids getting injured way earlier than they used to because they're playing too much football and, and all the camps and everything. Um, you know, you remember, we didn't have any of that. Um, remember when we just played, like we showed up in the fall and we played, yeah. right. There was no, you know, <laughs> it, it allowed you to play other sports. Like, you know, if, I mean, you know, not doubling up, but I mean, if you could play on the school volleyball team for a couple months, you pick up a hockey stick, you pick, you know, you go to, you drive by a park now, there's nobody there. Oh, you oh. know, there's moms pushing kids in a stroller. There's no kids playing. There's no kids playing big games of football anymore. Or, you know, like you, you see some kids playing hoops because hoops, you know, hoops a big deal now. But, you know, I don't see kids just I don't see kids lining up eight, nine guys and just playing pickup football anymore. So it, it doesn't happen. No. And, uh, you know, you know why that is? It's because they're already playing. They're already going to a football camp or they're already getting like private training or like which is great. And again, I'm not trying to badmouth anybody i think it's amazing i'm just saying we didn't have that mm-hmm. so we had to do so we had to do what we had to do and some of our some of our training was some of our training was just pick up football with the guys right that's where we got our that's where we developed our skills and a lot of that stuff wasn't coached i no one ever i never you know i didn't have a, a like a actual running back coach till i got to the sooners and that was bobby's brother i never had I never, like, he was my first, like, actual, hey, this is how you take a handoff. You know, I, I've been I've been doing football camps since I retired in 2004, and I've been teaching little kids how to take handoffs. Like, six, seven-year-old kids, you know? So, they're already ahead of the game here. They're already ahead of the game now. And, uh, you know, in, in, that, in, that, in that sense, like, I, you know, I don't like the watered-down things, but in that sense... I think we've come a long way and we're starting to 
you know, we're starting to catch up to those football communities that get to play year round. Uh, you know, they play their season, but then they get training year round in, in the warmer weather. You know, we're starting to build domes and things like that where, you know, kids can kids can go to camps. Uh, you know, Donnie, Donnie Ruiz comes to mind. You know, um, I, uh, I, you know, I, I got to play. You know, I was lucky enough to be a teammate of his on the Renegades and the stuff he's doing, uh, you know, with with the kids in the training is amazing. And that one-on-one training, and he gets his little groups, and you know he's got, he's got stuff online, and I mean it's just really impressive. So, in that sense, we've really come a long way. No, I tend to agree with you, and I mean I, I, the point you brought up earlier too. I might even tell in the description of the podcast that they should uh, fast forward to that point or pay careful attention because the point I've made uh, often is just with the amount of football kids are playing these days. Um, I tell them, I'm like, you know, it's not necessarily, and I don't think other uh, set of problems that occur at a young age, I say, but you know, if they're a little, a, a younger kid, like when they first play, I guess the 13 or 14, I go, I don't recommend it, but, but it is what it is. But I say after 14, you're just hitting too hard. Once you're 15, you're too big you're not physically a child anymore and football's a violent collision game once every coach you've heard this we've all heard it's not a contact sport it's a collision sport and so i mean putting the young body like the 15 16 17 year old through back-to-back seasons and they finally put the rule on the high school stop that because you had guys playing high school and and city ball after playing an entire summer season and then, like you said, and then going into specialty camps, I mean, I coach QBs in a, in a specialty in the quotation setting. I work these camps. I think they're a good add-on, but they're not the be-all, end-all. And on top of it, um, the best athletes that we see playing in the NFL and in the CFL usually all have similar stories of playing multiple sports during multiple seasons. Um, That's right. And developing – like truly cross training, but not in the the commercial sense or the advertising sense, but truly, you know, working different muscles that you know, don't need a lot of fancy, fancy exercises or equipment or or specialty stuff to do. You just need to go out and do it. You know, there's, yeah, there's nothing that's right. like doing the actual skill. You're better at it, and so. You know, you're right. It wasn't as right. We we didn't have the same things they have now. In a lot of ways, there's some huge advances. And I say, oh, this would have been great to have it. So I participate in them. I'm a fan of them. Um, but on the other end, like you said, I think a lot of uh, some there's there's give and take with everything. Not everything's a perfect utopia, or you know, everything in the past. There's some things you can pull from that, and there's no better way to to become a better football player than playing football. Um, especially, you know, yeah. look at your running backs, receivers, QBs, DBs. If you're out there playing in the in the field or in the handlock ball, as we call it, um, you're you're learning a lot about yourself as an athlete, developing skills and learning what you can and cannot do and what works for you and doesn't work. So I think it's, yeah, no, it's, it's interesting to see the transition. Now, we go from junior, which I agree, great thing. Then you kind of, you, you, you come back to, uh, after your junior career, you came back to Ottawa U, I believe it was for one year, correct? Yeah, so in 91, I, I, uh, I got invited myself and, um, uh, oh my God, Dave Weatherall. Myself and Dave Weatherall get invited to um, Rough Rider Camp. 
Yes. Um, and actually, even yes. before even before that, so that whole '90 season, uh, I was actually on the practice roster with the Rough Riders, both of us. So we would we would practice with the Rough Riders uh, in you know in the afternoon. I had class in the morning. I practiced in the afternoon with the Rough Riders. From you know meetings were at about one. We'd be done by about four four thirty five o'clock, and then I would we would uh, jump in Weatherall's car and we'd drive to uh, Sooners practice and practice again. Night. So, um, I mean, we weren't Night. doing anything crazy at, at, at with the Rough Riders because we were ba- we were basically practice roster guys. So we only came in for D team, O team. Like it wasn't physically demanding, right? In terms of you right. know, um, and, and you know, and it was uh, in the CFLs. You know, they don't. There's not a lot of hitting. You know, even back then, hitting was all done in training camp. They didn't hit. They didn't hit a lot during the week. So, um, you know, it wasn't physically taxing. And we were. And we were. 18 years old right great <laughs> yeah. 19 years old yeah. like you, you can run all day when you're 19 so um i go to training camp that summer i don't make the team and and I, I just a quick reference on that um i'll never forget it um i i'm the last like it's the last day of cuts so i think i'm gonna make the team uh i was competing with and i did not know this at the time sean daniels great cfl uh, fullback running back fullback Sean Daniels who played you know, years and years here. And he played years and years out West good Montreal guy. Sean was the one who explained ratio to me. I didn't know what ratio meant. And he came into my room that morning and he said, he said, you know, um, he said, if you get cut today, he goes, don't worry, you'll be back. And I said, well, I don't want to get cut. He goes, yeah, but he goes, the numbers suggest that you might get cut. Hmm. And he goes, you're competing. He goes, you're, and I, and I said, well, you know, and I started counting, I started counting running backs. He goes, don't count running backs, count Canadians. <laughs> he goes, you're not competing against the Americans. You're competing against the Canadians. You want to be one of the last Canadians standing. And he said, he, he said, I'm, he goes, I don't play tailback so that you don't have to worry about me. He goes, you, you got to look at who, which Canadians are here to play tailback. So I started counting Canadians and I realized that myself and Bart Hull, Brett Hull's younger brother, yeah. were the last yeah. two Canadians running backs standing. So, um, Steve Goldman, the head coach calls me into the office, you know, the grim reaper comes into my room with this clipboard and he goes, bring your playbook. I was like, shit. So we go, you know, we go into the, uh, we go into the coach's office and he sits me down and he, and he looked me right in the face and he said, he said, you had a better camp than he did. He goes, he goes, if, if it was just, if we were just talking about talent, he goes, I'd keep you. He said, but I'm going to explain something to you. This is very important. He said, he said, you have a lot to learn about, you know, being a professional. And, you know, he goes, he goes, he goes, we can tell you're out there just running around because you, you have skill. He goes, but, you know, he goes, we know you don't understand. Uh, you know, you're not a good blocker. He goes, you know, we don't, you don't understand how to read defenses. Like you, you don't, you just get there and you run through the four hole if it's four run. If it's a, if it's counter, you run counter, but you don't, you don't think about why the lineman's pulling and why that, guys blocking down and why that guy's reaching to second level you don't think about those things and he goes we can see it on film he goes so your football IQ needs to get better and the last thing he said to me was and his last name is Hull and this is a hockey town and we need to sell tickets (laughs) (laughs) told me that straight to my face (laughs) I was like okay okay so he said go back to Ottawa U play a year and we'll see you next year in camp and um, that's exactly what happened. So I went back to Ottawa U. I was already at Ottawa U. So I really just had to, you know, um, try out for the team. And, uh, you know, I made the team and 
you know, I played, uh, I played running back that year um, in 91. And then I was lucky enough to make all conference. And, you know, we had some, we had some talent. We didn't, you know, we didn't have, we'd lost some guys. We didn't have a lot of size in the O-line like, like in previous years, but uh, those guys, I, I rushed for almost 900 yards in six games, I think. So they, those guys blocked for me for sure. And, uh, and then I, I, and I was lucky enough to get invited back to Rough Rider camp. And that's, and you know, this, the next time I went back, I, I understood exactly what he was talking about. I, I watched film. Um, I prepared myself. I learned how to block. I didn't know how to block. I couldn't block sunlight back then. So I learned how to pass block. I learned how to run block. Um, another thing he told me is you, you don't play special teams. And, uh, you know, he goes, he goes, you play cause we put you out there. He goes, but you got to want to run down there and make tackles. You got to want to block on punt team. You got to want to block on punt return. He goes, this is, he goes, I know everyone wants to carry the football, but you got to do the other things. You got to do the little things. So I started watching people. I, I, I got, I, I volunteered for special teams at Ottawa U, you know, try to try to get in there and play everything. And then, you know, by the time I went back to training camp in 92 with the Rough Riders, I was definitely a better, uh, more well-rounded uh, football player. Let's put it that way. No, and one of the great things, Darren, is the great thing. again, I, I, a couple of takeaways, I, I, just from what you were saying there, is that I, I want to, hopefully a lot of kids are listening because uh, you hear coaches say it, and it's, it was helping out with the Gatineau Vikings just yesterday. And I said this to a back. They have a really talented running back. And, and I told him, and, and it wasn't these great kid, really coachable. It wasn't like a lack of effort. It's kind of like, you know, okay, this is almost a necessary evil, so I'm doing it. Um, and I explained to him, I said, what's your goal? Do you want to be a pro running back? And he's like, yes. And I said, that's a great goal. You know, don't ever let anybody tell you. I said, but you need to learn to block if that's your goal. Because once you get to university, um, and a lot of young running backs, they think, you know, the, the glory is in carrying the ball, but you're probably – one of almost, I don't know, every running back I've talked to that's reached the levels you did that, yeah, if you can't block, you can't play at a certain level. So, I mean, that's a, I, I love that you reinforced that message. And then my other takeaway was kind of a, kind of a selfish, from a selfish piece, but uh, I'm going to try to get you on an, an another time on our podcast here. But all we're going to talk about is the conversations in the car ride between you and Weatherall. Um, because quite, you know, I lived with Dave in, in France for, for a year and in Oslo, Norway for a year as teammates playing overseas in Europe. And, and I love weather all and the story. Like I'd love to get him on here. I mean, I don't know how many stories we tell. Um, but yeah, I, 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 if not now, if we don't do it on a podcast, DJ, I got to get you sometime when the two of us have a chance to sit down and I just want at least, uh, two or three weather breaks other, or even just because uh, I can imagine what that was like. And, and that would have been weather in his final beat. I think, I think weather always weather and he'll always be my boy weather But I think that was right when he was in his prime of being weather but uh, I, you know, just speaking about him quickly, I, 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 to me, Weatherall was a grown ass man. Oh, hundred percent. Like I, to me, to me, the rest of us were the rest of us. It was like it was like a bunch of kindergarten kids standing around, you know, Arnold Schwarzenegger in that movie. <laughs> like we were just the rest of us were just a bunch of little punk kids, and Weatherall was a grown ass man. Do you remember? Like six, what? 
Do you remember when we went down? It was the Exhibition Danbury down at Western University. We stayed in London. Yes. And we were yep. playing Burlington. They ran the option. They had uh, they had the two good backs there, the Dave Denall. Dave Denall and they had uh, Orville Dixon. Orville Dixon, yep. exactly. And they were running the option. And we're playing against them in this, uh, you know, exhibition type setting. And they bobbled a pitch. I don't remember if it was a snap. It was a pitch. It was a fumble. And Weatherall picks it up. And he, he picks up the ball, takes off with it, and you saw every head on each sideline, including theirs, just kind of do a double take. Like, are we watching this? As these backs are not catching this guy. Like, he, he granted, he had a five-yard yeah. start on them, but they weren't catching him from behind as whether all trucked 40 yards for the touchdown. Um, yeah, like you said, just a yeah. – He was yeah. incredible. Man-child, I mean – they, it's funny. Uh, I tell you, DJ, I, I could bring a bunch of French guys on right now. That'll just, you'll see the look in their eyes and their jaws drop, and they'll tell you stories of whether all on and off the field. That uh, <laughs> areas of the old French still a legend. Oh man, he was he was great. He was just just a bone crushing. I mean, nobody could block him. He was he. Had, you're right. He had the he had the speed of a, a running back, and he had the you know, he had the size of a a, de- a, de- a defensive end, you know, like a like a like an old school, you know, defensive end. But he but he was strong. God, it was it was it was fun to play with him. It was fun to watch. You know, like a, you, see, you watch those NFL films where they, you know, they marvel at watching some of the. That's how I felt watching him. And it's just, it you know, there were there were hits that you just you felt it in your jaw. You know, like oh my God, like how's a kid gonna get up? Yeah, it was it was great. It was and that was, yeah. you know, that's when they let stuff go to. I, I, I have to say this. This bothers me. I was watching football the other day and uh, receiver caught the ball. And the DB hit him. The DB hit him and the receiver really wasn't looking like he was focused on the ball. So, you, of course, he wasn't looking at the at the defensive back. He, he, you know, he, he had, a, he had his hands in perfect position to catch the ball. He caught the ball. He tucked it in. As soon as he caught it, he tucked it. And yeah, he took a good shot. I'm not, you know, it wasn't even a headshot. And, and, and he got called for uh, hitting a defenseless receiver. And I was like, he's not defense. He's, he's running around. He's catching football. He knows he's going to get hit. Cause he tucked as soon as he caught the ball, he tucked, mm-hmm. he tucked, he even tucked mm-hmm. his, like he was expecting to get hit. And I just, I, I mean, are we, are we, is this foot, like, is it two hand touch? What are we doing? Like, I, I don't know. I, I, uh, I came up, like I said, I came up in it. Maybe it's the caveman days for, for most people, but for me, um, like that's football. You kept, you, you, you pay the price for, you know, you, you catch a ball, you know, second level and you should expect to get hit every time you catch it. When you come down without getting hit, it's a blessing. No, the whole idea. You should expect no, to get it. You don't. Right? And you so. Don't. You get it. Like. You get. Go ahead. Yeah, sorry. No, I was just saying. Yes. Uh, saying exactly. Sorry about that, Darren. I was saying exactly what you're saying. You, you, it, the, old, the old way was that you own that area and you made it so that you, the receiver, A, didn't really want to do it. And you avoided throwing there. And then you got alligator arms. Like instead of that receiver feeling uninhibited to go after that ball. He's like, nah, you know what? Um, I'm going to make a business decision here and I'm going to protect myself. And <laughs> it's, it's second, it's second and 
you know. Yeah, we saw a lot of alligator arms back in the day. Oh, 100%. But, uh, you know, but that, that yeah, I mean, it was, uh, you know, to kind of protect yourself. So, I mean, I, I think, I, I think it's, it's tough because, I mean, football is football. I agree with everything they're doing with the, with the head contact. Um, some of these 911 shots like that we used to see back in our day and even in the, you know, early 2000s. I, I like what they're doing with that. But I also think certain things you're like, okay, you know what? There's an inherent risk to doing this. People know the risk. Um, you, you can't ultimately make box 100% safe. You can't make football 100% safe. You can you can be smart about the things you do. Um, but, I mean, again, there's also a factor to it. Like you said, part of the idea is, yeah, it's it's coming into some of these hits. Like you said, it's, it's you know, the reason we do that is because Buddy's going to end up preferring to protect himself then catch the ball so you accomplish what you want he doesn't get hurt because he he alligator arms it um you know (laughs) yeah it's i and again it's uh i haven't played in you know i haven't played football in uh 16 years so um i i know that's changed and i i know that it's designed now there's a they're putting a few rules in place to protect the players and the innocent you know and head injuries and all i get it i just that particular play, I, I just think sometimes I just think now, even with the pass interference, it's just like let the, like it, it's starting to lose that where you know that competitive edge. Just let them play, right? And um, I find too many games now are determined by either either really ridiculous calls or no call or no calls, as we saw with the uh, New Orleans Saints a couple of years ago, <laughs> where you know it's I mean my my mom passed away in 2013 and she could have made that call, <laughs> you know, like it's just ridiculous. And so I, you know, I just, uh, there's some, some things that frustrate me about, about some of the rule changes, but overall I have to admit, yes. Um, we, we could do with some, without some of the real, um, vicious, the real vicious stuff where, you know, people actually really get hurt and nobody wants that. Yeah, like you know, Fred the Hammer Williamson. I mean, I love the guy, and I got I love watching clips of him. But I suppose you can kind of say there's there's a case to be made for not hammering people in the head anymore. So, uh, yeah, no, hundred percent. Yes, but um, now I just want to touch uh, briefly on your uh, on your CFL career. You kind of um, you kind of explained to us kind of your sentiments or your thought process getting cut from the. Uh, from the Rough Riders and understanding a the racial slash business side of it, and b what you had to do to to get yourself there, and you obviously did it. Um, talk a little bit about your first few games in the pros. I mean, you kind of, and for people that uh, some of the older listeners will for sure remember you. They you obviously as a teammate of yours, uh, only two years earlier in Sooners. Um, I it was something I followed, but you kind of at the time it was a very it was a huge rarity to have a Canadian tailback. Like it was still a rarity at, and you were fighting uphill battle. Talk about the first few years. Cause you kind of came on like, you know, you came on strong. Like there was a big buzz about you very early in your career. What was that like? Thanks. Um, uh, you know, like when I finally did make the team in 92, um, Reggie Barnes was the kind of the, the mainstay back here. Um, and he, he'd won the job only a couple of years earlier you know, and, and was an amazing back, good, good football player, good IQ, um, you know, very helpful, you know, especially for a guy who was competing with me. Um, he was, he was very, uh, he was, he was very, 
you know, very honest and very like, you know, you know, if, if, if I didn't hear something, he'd make sure I, I heard and he'd make sure in, in meetings that I, you know, I understood and, uh, you know, a real professional. So I just wanted to say that, but, uh, you know, this, it was tough, you know, this guy's coming from Delaware state, uh, and you know, anyone, anyone from a div one school back then had the advantage. I mean, they just, all the coaches for the most part were American, um, and, uh, coming in as a Canadian back, you were treated differently for sure. And, you know, I, I, I always knew that, um, I'd have to, I'd really have to do good things. I'd really have to show that I belonged. Uh, and I tried to do that right away. Um, and one of the biggest compliments you could get back then was when an American linebacker who didn't know who you were would come up and go, you know, uh, you know, so what school did you go to? You know, where you, what, you know, where'd you go? What school did you go to? And I, and I go, Ottawa, you, Ottawa, you, you're from here. And I'm like, yeah. And they'd be like, Oh, I thought you were American. That was, that was a compliment in 1992 because nobody expected, you know, if you played, if you played D line linebacker, um, you know, if you played free safety, uh, you know, yeah, great. You know, but positions like, uh, or and if you're a slot back, that's awesome. But positions like outside receiver was almost like an exclusively an American position. Um, uh, rush, rush end usually was an American position. Uh, at least one of the linebacker, two of the linebacker spots were American, and the corners were always American. You know, you, 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 free safety was reserved for Canadian players, and all the other DB positions by and large were American positions and the number one American position without a doubt was tailback. Mm -hmm. So um, for me to, for me to, for me to make the team and be able to back up at that position was a huge deal. But then for me to actually start some games, uh, my, my rookie year um, was, was great. It was a great experience. And uh, I was very lucky that I had uh, Jim Daly on the staff at the time because Jim Daly was my running back coach in 92 and he really pushed for me to get out there on the field. And, uh, and we, we had several conversations and he would say, you know, you need to do this. They're watching, you know, the, you know, you want to have a good game, this game on special teams, you might get in there, you might get in there. And then, uh, and then I got an opportunity and I try to make the most of it. Yeah. And, and one quick question, talk, and I want to ask you a little bit more about those, uh, those, the, those early games. Cause again, I, I was telling the story just when I asked you the, the previous question and I got to stress to people again, anybody that was around the football, um, uh, circles back in Ottawa back in that day, they remember you. It isn't to pump your tires. It isn't to fill. It, it's, you know, as the kids say today, it, it's you came on like busters and, and it was like you said, tailback was just not a Canadian position. And so there was a lot of hype around you. Now, I know a lot of it had to do, I knew you before you were, you were playing uh, uh, in the CFL, just a certain brand person. So I, it, guys like you, generally, you know, success is going to change you. I know the upbringing you had and raised you in terms of your ability to handle that success. But even so, you were such a young man. And I mean, and all modesty aside, DJ, you know there was a buzz about this Canadian tailback. How did you keep that in perspective and push yourself to work harder instead of get caught in the trap? A lot of guys who saying, hey, I've reached it and I'm going to enjoy the lap of luxury type of thing. Yeah, it, you know, I, maybe it's because I'm from here. Um, and, and all my, you know, my mom, you know, I had my mom in, in my ear all the time telling me, you know, 
you know, to keep working hard. And you know what, just cause you made the team, like every time I would get to a level, my mom would always remind me, you know, you still have to work harder than this. You still have to be better. You still have to, you know, she was always in my ear with that kind of stuff. So, you know, I didn't really, I didn't have time to like, it, it, I was just, ha- I'll, t- I'll be honest. Like I made the team and like, it was a lifelong dream of mine to play for the rough riders. And I, I was just happy to be there. And I, it's just, I, I've kind of lived my life that way. Just, you know what? I'm just thankful. I'm happy to be here. I'm going to keep working hard and whatever happens happens. And, um, I've been, I've been told by several people that I have a modest, uh, approach to my football career or, you know, achievements in my life. But to me, um, you know, there, there was so much more work to do and there's, there's so many more things I needed to learn. And I never, I never felt settled. Even now I, I you know, I've, I've been working now in my field for 16 years and I still don't feel settled. I always feel like, you know, and I think that comes from that football mentality. Um, and, and I try to teach this to people. I, t- I talk about how football is a lot like life, you know, and it teaches a lot of life lessons. Um, you know, one man doesn't do his job. The whole team suffers, um, you know, hard work pays off, blah, blah, blah. Like I, I, I'm always, I'm constantly teaching football lessons to uh, whether it be kids that I work with uh, through, uh, through the SRO program with the police or my own kids or when I'm coaching. But I always try to tell them, you know, at the end of the day, um, you can always be replaced. Mm-hmm. And I, when I was in the CFL, I watched, um, you know, in 93, about halfway through 93, when we start losing, they start airlifting guys, right? You come in and there's six lockers empty. <laughs> you know, guy, a guy that you just had a beer with the night before, he's on a plane to, you know, Arkansas or wherever he's from. And so you, you start to see, wow, like nobody and guys that were like, you know, guys that were high profile guys, starters, guys who had been all stars in the league, they're, you come in the next morning and they're gone. They either traded or released. So you like, I, and I always have that fear, I guess it's, and it's a healthy fear. It's not something I, I dwell on constantly, but I always have that in the back of my head that, you know what, you're, you, you think you're good, but they can, you know, someone else is going to take your job if you don't keep working hard and you don't keep trying to be better. And, um, like I've carried that throughout my, my life. So I just, I don't have time to be, Oh, look at me, <laughs> you know, like I actually think it's a ridiculous, uh, like, you know, I, and I, I understand a lot of, uh, there's a lot of athletes now that are, you know, they have their social media accounts and this and that. And there's a lot of, there's a lot of, there's a lot of talks, a lot of, a lot of guys talk trash now about how great they are. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just never been, it's just never been my way. No, uh, I, I, I can definitely 100% attest to that, man. It was always, like I said, as good a ball player as you were, I think you were, you were a, a better locker room guy. And I mean, again, that's, <laughs> you were one hell of a football player. And I mean, the things I think you would agree with this, that we kind of remember and we start thinking, like you said, your memories of the Broncos clubhouse, your teammates, your bus rides on the, uh, you know, going down the 401 with the Sooners, having, having our bus break down Branded on a hill and being picked up by uh, a crew of uh, you know seventy-year-old golfers and having you know just stuff. <laughs> that's the stuff. You like. That's the stuff you remember, uh, you know. Um, but it's uh, I'll take a chance, or I'll take this chance to actually because uh, I don't want to keep you too too much longer. I could go on for uh, for 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 hours chatting with you, man. But I want to kind of use this as a segue. You're talking about your your 
your after football life or your next career and how you've been there for 16 years. I want to talk a little bit about that. Now. You joined the police, uh, Ottawa services, obviously 10 years ago. So what kind of led to that? Was that always a thought in your younger years during your football career as an after, or was that something that didn't come to fruition until after you were playing football? It, it the first time you gave it thought. Okay. Um, you know, I, 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 I kind of fell in love with the idea of being a police officer when I was a kid. Okay. So uh, people who grew up in, anyone who grew up in Britannia in the seventies, late seventies would know uh, Herbie Waugh. So Herbie was a, Herbie was, I think he was the second or third black police officer to ever join uh, the Ottawa police. I don't know if it's Ottawa or Nepean, you know how they were all, um, yeah. they had yeah. Ottawa and Nepean uh, yeah. East. Yeah. Um, so um, but I, you know, I think he was either Nepean or Ottawa, but he was only the, there was Terry Friday and then there was Herbie Waugh. So Herbie was a Caribbean guy. Um, he was, uh, he was, he was, he was about five ten, and just jacked. Like he, he was, he was just, he, he was built like, he was built like a, like a, like a running, he was built like an NFL running back. Like he, and uh, he was a soccer player, believe it or not. And Herbie's, Herbie's, uh, Herbie's house was about a, a half block from my building on Marie street and he used to park his police car. And that's back in the day, I guess, when it was safe to be a police officer, you could park your police car in the driveway. You'd like park his police car in the driveway and it'd be there all night. And then he'd get up in the morning, put his uniform on and go to work. So, um, Herbie was also my soccer coach because I played Ottawa West soccer. So he was my coach and he would talk about being a police officer. And that was the first time I really ever came into contact with the police officer. And I always kept that in the back of my head because everyone loved Herbie. Herbie was like the neighborhood. He was actually does what I do now. I'm a community, uh, community, a, a CPC officer. So community policing center officer. And that's what he did. Herbie was the guy that, uh, that uh, he would take kids through on their bikes at the safety village down in Britannia. That was Herbie. Right. So everyone knew him. All the, all the schools from all over the city would come to the, would come to Britannia to, to ride their bikes. So I, I, I always had them at the back of my head. And then I went to St. Lucia when you're on vacation and I found out that my aunt and my uncle were deputy and deputy chief of the police in Beaufort, St. Lucia in my town where I, where my family's from. So I, I, have always kind of had police around me somewhere, Okay. you know, but I, um, okay. I, I, I went on a ride along. I'm not going to tell you the details of the ride along cause it was crazy. It was a crazy, it ended <laughs> up in a, in a, in a car chase and it was crazy. But uh, that was a night that I, I knew um, I knew something I really wanted to do. And the feeling that I got, I, I was coming out of the station and I was standing on the, um, on the corner of Catherine, right in front of 474 Elgin at Catherine and Elgin. And a, and a car went by, lights and sirens, and I got these shivers. And I was like, that's what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. I knew it right that moment. And then everything, I t- and then I put all my eggs into that basket. I just started applying you know, working on my resume, uh, you know, building, uh, you know, building community, uh, you know, co- community experience and volunteer work and whatever I could to, uh, to make that the end goal. And I was doing that for the last three years of my football career. Um, you know, because I knew that I had to, I knew that I had to secure some, some type of employment when football was done, but at least I knew what I wanted to do. A lot of guys retire from the CFL, a lot of guys that I played with and had no idea. Um, and they really struggle um, to find to find careers after. 
because professional football, it really is. You put everything you have into that. Mm. And it's, it's hard sometimes mm. to turn it off. Some guys can't turn it off. No, I can believe it. I can definitely believe that. Now, quick, it's funny because uh, you said something there. I say funny, not ha-ha, but I, kind of, you'll see where I'm going with this question. Um, you were talking about how back in the day, and I remember this. I remember this as a kid seeing individual police cars um, parked in, you know, like we had uh, the hockey cause our hockey coach slash uh, slash uh, OPP officer in Canada before uh, Canada was part of an Ottawa or part of Ottawa, and you know, and there'd be stories of him breaking up the local push bash that would you know might have involved our goalie from the night before type. <laughs> uh, that's the world I lived in. I remember one time, and it's funny. It was just a, it was a great community. He had such a a tie with these guys real quick story is one of our guys and I'll, I'll leave the name of the player out because anybody who knows will know who it is but i'll leave the it was a hockey and he's like comes in and he's like oh and he's all worried because we're about 14 and he'd been at like somewhere he should have been in the police showed up but he'd take off he managed to get away but he was certain that off that uh coach baker's like obviously you knew what and so he um so sure enough officer wayne baker was comes in the locker room sees the player and says excuse me so he's like hey, hey guys like, oh by the way so i'm so yeah how the heck did you get away yesterday he's like i'm sure i had you and he, <laughs> you know, ah good move all right let's you know it was an innocent thing but yeah it made me think of that but anyway sorry i digress <laughs> that's, okay. that's okay that's a good one <laughs> uh, you were talking about exactly that how it was safe to park the the, the cruiser in the uh in, in the drive the whole just i think the climate around police force was different than than it was say two three years ago but especially now today with everything that's happening south of the border i don't want to make the you know turn this too serious but i just want to kind of get a little bit of your thoughts being a, a, a black police officer, not in the, in the U.S., but in Canada. And how do you think things are, what do you think the perception is right now? Or what are you seeing in the community? Am I making sense the way I'm asking that? Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. I, 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 uh, I've been holding my tongue in this one for a long time. So um, my, uh, I, so many things. So I've been a police officer now um, in my 16th year uh, in policing. And I've even seen a shift since I joined in 2005 till now. And, and what I notice is, um, and, and what I notice is, is that, I, first of all, let me say this. I'm a, I'm a very proud member of the Ottawa Police Service. Um, I, think, I, think we have, I think we have a great organization. I think that it's very diverse. We, had, we have a lot of opportunity in my, I've never, I've never been turned down from a position since I've been here. Every position I've ever applied for, I've, I've attained. I've never had anyone say, you know, uh, you know, you, you, you know, I've never had anyone treat me differently because of my skin color. Um, but that's me. That's my experience. Um, I can't speak for all officers of color in the auto police service, but I'm saying in, in my, in my experience, that's how it's been. Um, I, I haven't seen people be racist to people on calls. And I worked in the market Vanier, like I've worked in some of the toughest neighborhoods or some of them that, you know, considered, considered high crime neighborhoods in Ottawa. Um, and I've never seen, uh, I've never seen people treated 
you know, like poorly by police since I've been here. I never got treated any, you know, we, I grew up right near Ritchie. We, we, there was police officers uh, like around all the time. I never got stopped. I never got searched on the road or made to, you know, I've never been abused by a police officer. I, I've never even heard of that growing up. So my experience here is obviously different than say a black police officer in Baltimore, Maryland or South side of Chicago. Right. So I can't speak to how they, I can't speak to how they police down there because that's not what I see here. Um, I, I believe that one of the issues is, is that we're pulling issues from down there and trying to make it what make it that the situation here. And it, it just isn't the same. Um, I, I believe in our training here. I believe in, I believe in the way that we hire here is different than they hire. And, and, and part of the problem is um, we our, our pay here is on par with our training and in the States. And I'm not saying that American officers aren't trained properly, uh, you know, it, it, but it's not, it's not as uniform as it is in Canada. We kind of follow the same model from coast to coast here in Canada, in the States, the training varies based on, based on city, based on state, based on police service, some of them are sheriffs. Some of them are, you know, constables. Some of them are like, they just have a totally different system than we have here and they're training. They train their officers individually. So let's look at who they hire here. If you don't have a university or post-secondary uh, education, you can forget about applying. You're not going to get hired. So they're not, if you just have high school here, forget it. Not a chance. Okay. You better have about a thousand hours or I can't remember how many hours of community service volunteer you you uh you you you're tested you know out the yin yang we do uh you do a psych evaluation so you do like a two three hour psych exam you got to meet with a psychologist if she sees anything even that's she feels this remotely off and i I understand that it's obviously not perfect because we've had officers been who've been disciplined here um so i'm not saying that that the system is perfect by any means but um on on the like on the whole i believe that we our hiring process is fair and i believe that it's 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 very accurate in terms of trying to get the best people to do the job and we get paid accordingly so if i if i'm in the states now i'm in a small town or whatever and i'm applying for a job as a police officer um and i don't need to be i don't need i don't need to go to university i don't so all the people that are university educated none of them are going to be cops because none of them want to make thirty two, thirty three thousand dollars a year. Mm-hmm. So you you've just eliminated that whole section of the population. So now we're talking about now we're talking about people, and I'm not saying that there's not intelligent people that aren't university educated. I'm just saying you're the likelihood that you're going to get people to apply for a job where their life's in danger for thirty grand is very low. Mm-hmm. Okay, so mm-hmm. you're then of that take take into account that you're going to be policing. Uh, in high crime areas, unfortunately, a lot of those areas in, in the inner city are not, are non-white. Okay. So, uh, black Hispanic, right. Um, it's, it's like a taboo in the United States and in a, in a lot of areas from the very beginning when kids are growing up and I've spent a lot of time in the States, I have family in the States, very, they have a bad, they have a horrible relationship with police. Mm-hmm. And that dates all the way back to the beginning. I'm not even going to get into the history, but they have a horrible relationship with the police as a whole. I know that there's 
some communities who have good relationships with their community officer, blah, blah, blah. But in general, the relationship between the police and the black community, I'm, I'm going to use the black community as an example, is, is horrible. And we see why we see a lot of the results, some of the some of the incidents that have happened in the States. That's where that's coming from. So from a young age, black, young black men are taught, why would you, you're not going to be a police officer. Um, you're a sellout. You're a Uncle Tom. Um, you're a, and I, I can get, I can get into more derogatory terms. That's what they hear on a daily basis. Not to mention the fact that they feel like they're being hunted by the police to begin with. So how many, how many able-bodied black men are going to join the police in the United States? Not many. You, you, you have some communities that have uh, a lot of black officers, but in, there are some communities where their, their whole communities are being patrolled by people who are not from their community. Mm-hmm. Right. So um, that's, that to me is the problem. Um, we, they, th- there has to be, there has to be communication between the police service and the community in terms of people, people have to want to take care of their own community, but then there has to be a trust in the police. There has to be. And if those two, if you can't bridge that gap, you're always going to have these issues because the black community don't trust the police and the black and, and, and the people from the community don't want to become police officers and police their own community. The only solution is to have people who are from that community to have a huge responsibility in how that community is run. And that involves a police service. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So um, yep. I, we don't have being a black officer here is completely different than being a black officer there. Having said that, in the last two three years, I've had more anti-police comments hurled at me just from the street, or from people that I'm dealing with, or large groups of people than I have ever heard in my entire life. Being a being whether whether it be a civilian or a police officer, I've I the disrespect right now for us as Ottawa police officers here has gone up like 200%. And I, and I'll be honest with you, I really don't see a difference in the way that we police. So that tells me that that tells me that we have a lot of people following in social media, getting wrapped up in, in that, in that whole, you know, in that whole, um, that whole toxic, uh, you know, experience that those people are, are going through there. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't support or whatever. That's not what I'm saying. But I'm saying, let's not make, let's not try to pretend that we're shooting people at an alarming rate in Ottawa. No, like I love that's not how we police here. Darren, I love that you you, you point there. I love that it's something I I've said. It's I said it about numerous things, numerous things. As a proud Canadian, um, there are many shortcomings, and I mean, I had uh, I had a great conversation with Nate Bahar. And, and I'm sure you and I, this is a topic for another day. We can talk about racism or, or instances we faced as, 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 you know, Canadians growing up. It's not utopia here. It's not without its problems. But again, we, you have to separate Canada from the U.S. And I see that. I see the toxicity of social media and, and what it truly is. To me, social media is, has nothing to do with reality, but unfortunately, it's become the perceived reality of many. And so it's, it's, you see it at here at a level that you can't even compare the two, uh, the, the two systems. Like you, you really, it, it, or it's dangerous to do so, I shouldn't say, unless you're qualified to do so. 
And at the end of the day, um, you know, unfortunately, I think what you're seeing from what you're telling me is almost it's it's becoming almost more of a, a, you know, a blind mentality. If I hear something and I'm not thinking for myself, nor am I judging, you know, the individual first character uh, for their character. I mean, there are there are corrupt doctors that have done horrible, horrible stuff in our history. There are corrupt athletes that have done horrible stuff. There are horrible teachers. There are horrible, you know. Um, police officers, there are horrible, you know, unemployed people. Um, I like to think, call me naive. I think at the end of the day, the human spirit and human being, so to speak, is, uh, is, is, is a decent person, a decent sort. And that, that unfortunately, or fortunately, I should say, fortunately enough, we're still stunned by this or not stunned, but we're still taken so far aback by such crazy behavior or whatnot that we, um, that that's almost a good thing because it shows that it hasn't become normalized and it shows that, you know, the majority of us, you know, kind of see things in a good light. So, I mean, all that to say, I kind of went off, uh, off, uh, off on a tangent, but all that to say that, you know, I think the simplest, most common sense words that anybody ever said. And I mean, I remember my dad telling me this is, you know, just judge the person, the, the individual um, for the individual, judge the individual by who they are. Um, and, and, you know, and proceed like that. And, uh, and, you know, life would be, I think a lot simpler for a lot of people. Yeah, I agree. I agree. But I'll tell you what, last 100%. question for you, man. Last question. I'll let you jump off. You got a couple more minutes here for me. Yeah, I'm good. I'm good. No rush. No, perfect. Perfect. Cause I want to, uh, I want to kind of finish up. I appreciate it. And again, I really appreciate, uh, you kind of touching on that a little. And I think it's important because I think in a lot of cases, um, we need to distinguish, like I said, distinguish the difference between being Canadian and American. And by no means, by no means. I mean, I've had, I don't know about yourself, I've had, and I'm, I'm not talking on the levels that, uh, that we're talking now, but I've had negative experiences with police officers, but I've also had very positive experiences with police officers growing up. And I mean, fortunately, like I said, it's I don't, each experience is an individual one, and I judge that one on their, uh, on their character and you know, it's, and you try not to think of what's not, sorry, not, not think of what's happening south of the border, but not compare the two because they're not comparable, like you said. But um, last but not least, buddy, um, in terms of, uh, we were talking, we're getting a little uh, it, into race relations and whatnot. Um, just compare it. I ask everybody this. What do you feel, how do you compare kind of race relations in the football locker room through your junior career, university career, pro career, um, especially pros mixed with the Americans versus, say, uh, real life? Do you think they're comparable? What's your thought about that? Uh, that's a great question. So I believe that, um, you know, and, and, and having playing football at, at every level and then playing uh, playing with people from, from, and, and it's funny you say that. So playing with black Americans, for example, who, who've lived in very, very racist, like under very, very racist circumstances. And I mean, like some of the stories I've heard are just brutal, right? Um, having, having, having talked to them and, and listened to them, um, you know, and, and then to see them with, you know, some white guy from, you know, Nepean or some white guy from, you know, Alberta, some farm in Alberta and to see them, see them bond and become best friends, you know, um, football brings people together. Um, and, and it really does. And, and it forces you, um, 
you know, and I don't, I don't mean to make this sound like a made for TV movie, but it forces you to learn. You, you have no choice. Like if I'm on the O-line and I'm playing guard and my left tackles from Tennessee and my, and my centers from, you know, my centers from, uh, you know, Winnipeg, I, at some point, you know, whether it be in meetings or on the field or we're going to have conversations and, and I'm going to learn about this guy and he's going to learn about me. And the great thing about football, besides it being a team sport and all that and teaching us about life and everything, football forces you to look at things because there's so many different characters and so many different personalities on a football team. Uh, the only way that you're going to survive as a team and the only way you're going to have success is if everyone kind of feeds off each other and you have to, you might, you don't have to like everybody on your team, but you have to respect them. And, and in order to respect them, you have to learn a little bit about them and they have to learn a little bit about you. And I, I the best teams I've ever been on were teams that um, it didn't matter where everybody was from. When we were on the field, we, we were, we were one and everyone played together. Everyone respected each other. And actually those teams that got along outside of football and hung out, outside of football and you'd see guys from two different worlds. Like it's, you know, and you'd be like, how are those guys friends? But you know, football was able to tear down those walls because that black American from Alabama or whatever would have never been buddies with this guy. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Especially not in, especially not in 1989 or 1990. Right. And, but because, but because they have football in common and they have a common goal, um, they're able to put, you know, this guy might have his, his perceptions about that guy and vice versa. They're able to put those things down on the ground and, and, and just focus on, you know, obviously playing football, but they also have to focus on each other's character now with, with no preconceived notions. And I, I, I've seen people from really, really vast, vastly different backgrounds uh, really connect in football. And I've never seen it anywhere else. I've never seen it, uh, you know, anywhere else, but in football with, you know, consistently for years and years and years, I see people who would not normally even look at each other, um, become brothers. And, you know, I, I remember the very first time I, uh, I started playing, I remember the coach, uh, uh, coach Briggs was my coach, my first coach. Cause J Jerry Rowland was my, was kind of like the team president, but coach Briggs was the, was the coach. I remember he used to drive a big, a big semi and he pulled the semi right up on the field. It was, it was amazing. <laughs> Anyways, coach Briggs told me, he said, this is war. And, and I'm looking, I am looking, I'm like, it's football. He goes, no, it's war. He goes, he goes, you know, you know, any other, is there anywhere else like a, a guy that's playing baseball? Is he put on armor? No, he said, he said the only two sports where people gear up, like we gear up is hockey and football. He goes, it's war. He goes, we're, we're putting on our, your helmet is your armor, your shoulder pads are your armor. This is war. And he said, he said, war makes, I can't remember how he put it, but he basically said war makes, you're either going to, you're going to separate the men from the boys, basically. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and that first hitting drill, and you know it, that first hitting drill every year, you figure out who, who wants to, who wants to be there and who doesn't, right? Because what I loved about football was they never, they wouldn't go, okay, two little guys go, okay. So you guys are about the same size. You guys go. It's just you make two lines, offense and defense, and whoever you get, you get. You know, and that's life to me. Is you get what you get. You 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 might be the smallest guy in the team, but you're gonna get Dave Weatherall. Mm -hmm. 
And it's, you know what, for, for a couple seconds there, you have to suck it up and you have to get in there and try to hit them. And, and you, you don't know what's going to happen, but you got to, you got to go in there blindly and, and, and give it all you have. To me, that's a perfect, you know, a perfect example of what life is, is like every, you don't know what you're going to get, but whatever you get, you got to deal with. No, I think you're, uh, I think you're exactly right, man. I appreciate that. It's funny. Uh, what you're telling that I make my head, I'm like, yeah, you know what? That's why I, I donned the red Jersey. So I didn't have to line up head to head with the legs of weather. Quite frankly, even quite frankly. Um, I'll leave you with this thought. I don't know if you ever heard this story. I'll leave you with this last story because you made me think about it when you were talking about just the guys of different cultures coming together and being teammates and learning a lot about each other. And uh, and I always remember trash talking that only could have ever happened in the CFL because of the drastic cultural difference. And it was a safety uh, in Ottawa, European, but Ottawa, Dan Murphy. And uh, oh, yeah. and there was a white yeah. uh, whiteout that I think won the Canadian or not Canadian, but a whiteout that won Player of the Year or was the runner-up David Williams from uh, South Central Los Angeles, and they're getting ready to play in the Grey Cup. Um, and uh, and Williams and I'm paraphrasing here, but said something. And, and Murphy was a hard hitter, that old school guy, like free safety Canadian guy. But you know, like the guys we described, he was gonna he was gonna make you pay for going over the middle. And everybody, yeah, and with guys like that, there was always the borderline question. And uh, so they're talking to Williams and they ask him, and he's from South Central Los Angeles, you know, uh, Murphy's been accused every now and then of being a cheap shot artist or this or that, or, you know, or, you know, you know, shots where there doesn't need to be. What do you think about this? And are you worried about playing a, a guy like this? And Williams said, listen, I'm not worried at all. I don't know anything about this guy. I've seen some of his crap. I think he said something to that effect. But if he tries any of that on me, I'm going to show him how we do things in South Central Los Angeles. And uh, <laughs> and then Murphy, they interview Murphy after. This is a great cup week. So they interview Murphy there. What do you think about him, about his comments? He goes, oh, I, I don't know what that means, really. I've, I've never been to South Central Los Angeles but um, I do know uh, I have been uh, to the strip in Hull when it clears out at 3.30 in the morning. And uh, <laughs> I, I think that's prepped me for anything. So, yeah, I'm not <laughs> I just remember, I'll always remember that because, you know, neither one has a clue what the other is talking about. But uh, <laughs> but anyways, Egypt man, I really well. Dave, David Williams did learn about the strip eventually. Uh, well, <laughs> one last story. I got to keep this the PG rating. But a buddy of mine, you probably crossed paths with him. Uh, um, Keith Poe played. He's from Houston, Texas. Played uh, played a few years with the Buccaneers. Played about five. Played the NFL defensive lineman. And, uh, okay. and anyways, his first road game was in Ottawa and I was working out in the gym and he'd come back and it was late. Uh, their season was done. It was probably around November. I'm down at university and I'm in the weight room training. He's there. We're talking and he's asking me, he's like, yeah, man, what's you're from Ottawa. And they're like, oh. he's like, oh, cool. That was my first road game. And he's like, what's the name of that place, man? It's like crazy. And I'm like, what do you mean? And this is a guy from Houston, Texas. He's like, it's just crazy. And I'm like, what do you mean? I, I won't go into great details as to his description. Other than I'll just, like, he goes, I don't know, man. We played the game 
And guys are like, yeah, this is where we're going. We jumped in a cab and we crossed this river. And on this bridge, that's all. <laughs> and, oh, yeah, and he's like, yeah, yeah, that was it. And so I had guys on my team in Texas asking me at UTEP, yeah, in Canada, when are you going to take, if we come visit, you're going to take us to Hull Street. We hear Hull Street's the place to be. And I'm like, yes, guys, Hull, Hull, Hull Street it is. Um, just, hey, I'll tell you, like, uh, like Ottawa was a Ottawa was a like a like the number one roadie for a lot of guys back in the early nineties. Everybody wanted to come to Ottawa so they could go to Hull after the game. Oh, I'm telling you, man. Uh, they say they say that Hull they say that Hull ruined the Rough Riders. That's what they say. <laughs> the early nineties, like the 90, 90, 91, 90, they say Hull ruined those teams. I don't because some of the some of the players just couldn't get enough. We're partying there all the time. I don't think that's really yeah. an accurate statement, man. Like I said, for those of a certain age, you remember what it was, and you just leave it at that. And like I said, all <laughs> was being discussed in a weight room at the University of Texas El Paso with a bunch of Americans asking me to uh, take them. And like I said, I quote Hull Street because they they heard all about it. But anyways, DJ man, thank you so much, brother. I appreciate you jumping on and talking football a little bit of life and other things. Um, again, let's uh, it's, it's great getting caught up, man. Do me a favor and uh, keep doing what you're doing and be safe. All right. All right. Thanks. Thanks for having me. It was awesome reminiscing and uh, telling stories. I apologize if I was long winded, but uh, you know me, <laughs> uh, <don't... laughs> I could talk forever. So uh, anyway, I really appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. Don't apologize, man. I loved it. Like I said, I had a grin from ear to ear and I'm sure there's a lot of great stuff. People are going to love listening to Thanks again, man. We'll talk soon. Thanks again, Matt. Talk soon. Yep, talk soon, buddy.